if you stay at something long enough, keep a positive attitude and just, I mean, be pathologically optimistic and continue to focus on delivering generative value for your customer, you're going to win. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Today we have Aaron Fulkerson, who is the CEO of MindTouch, which provides customer self-service software that makes your customers smarter, happier, and more successful. Aaron, how's it going? It's going terrific, Eric. Never been better. Nice to be on your show. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you start off with telling us a little bit about kind of who you are and what you do over there at MindTouch? Well, I'm one of the two founders of MindTouch. Myself and Steve started the company. In fact, it actually started off as an open source project that we just wanted to solve a very specific problem. And then it evolved from there. And I'm also the CEO. So my day-to-day involves mostly vision and helping, you know, of course, set strategy and vision, but also engaging with strategic partners. And, uh, you know, I, I still get involved in sales pretty actively as well, too. Got it. Okay. And so, you know, I, I described MindTouch a little bit, but I, I think most people are still probably wondering, like, what what the heck is MindTouch? Like, how does it help people? What does it do exactly? Well, do you like calling in for support or filing a support ticket? Uh, I, I'd rather uh, watch paint dry. Yeah, nobody likes to call in to support. They just want to self-serve. So that's what we solve for. And we are, without a doubt, the unequivocal leader in self-service. And I can say that in complete sincerity because there's been no innovation around self-service since before the internet. So people produce these PDF files, they put them online uh, that predates the internet. Then there's people inside the support channels that use a knowledge base. And that's like where the detritus of the support channel goes. And then there's like training stuff, there are videos. And anyway, we, we've got a very elegant solution for combining all these different content types and then making sure that it's relative experience for customer self-service. So if you've had a great self-service experience, you probably use MindTouch. Interesting. Yeah. You know, when you say self-service, the only thing I can think of is, is those uh, those knowledge bases and those FAQs, which I tend to typically ignore. I don't think I can ever recall a good self-service experience. So is there any way you can de- describe like a case study perhaps? Yeah. Like just go to Google and type in VPN configuration, virtual private network configuration. And you'll see that the very top search result is a featured snippet, which is that little card at the top that's, po- that's Meraki, Cisco Meraki. They're one of our customers. So you immediately just typing in something not even related to their products, you're getting information about how to set up your virtual private network that's being delivered by one of our customers because of how we structure the content. So you immediately get an answer. Not only do you get an answer, but MindTouch with machine learning identifies other potential chunks of content because we atomize the content, the micro content would drive engagement. So uh, what our customers see is they go from those crappy FAQs or knowledge bases that has 
an average time on site of 40 seconds because it sucks to all of a sudden like Meraki or Whirlpool, who's one of our customers or um, Remington or Accenture, their time on site goes from 40 seconds to 12 minutes. Why? They're finding information that's useful. They're driving, it's driving engagement. So the thing is, is the companies always have this content. It's a byproduct of doing business. They have to produce user manuals. They have to produce a knowledge base. They have to produce training materials. But the way that they've delivered those to the market is completely ineffective for customer self-service. And it's because they've only focused on their internal work groups rather than the customer. So it's really thinking customer first. How do you deliver a content experience that's customer first? That's what we do. Interesting. Cool. So it sounds like the, the the main value add is you make it very digestible and simplified for people to to understand and to solve their own problems versus just having a, a wall of text from you know all these what which is basically what other people do, right? Or files, right? Like oh, you have yep. a PDF file, pinch and zoom on your mobile device, I and mean, it's ridiculous, right? Uh, so yep. uh, that's that's precisely correct, and and we think about it. I mean, Google calls it micro moments. That's how we think about it. Is we take the content, we atomize it so it can be delivered in a micro moment, and then it's it's so effective it drives a lot of self service. So it takes this this um, content that was used ineffectively for customers to be able to understand how to use the product that they purchased or service that they purchased, and now, like I just showed you with Meraki, um, you could do the same thing for things related to washers and dryers and mixers because there are customers as well. You'd see our content show up in the top search result for companies when people are searching for not even their brand, but for products in their category. Like I just showed you VPN configuration or set up client VPN would be another one of Meraki. I'm, I'm thinking of Meraki because I was just talking to the general manager last week and, and we drive 80% of their organic search traffic and it's all buyers. It's mostly buyers who are researching to make a purchase in that category. It's the same thing for KitchenAid, Amana, Maytag, Whirlpool who use this as well is this is 60% on average people in the research stage making a decision to make a purchase on a considered purchase. And we're driving all this organic search and they're able to session them, start tracking them, drive them to a purchasing outcome. Oh, and by the way, it helps your customer self-service. So very focused customer self-service, but it has an impact on revenue generation. Interesting. Yeah, I'm totally seeing that now. So those of you probably heard me clicking around, I was actually looking at the results. So yeah, Aaron was right. I mean, they do have the 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 rank zero of the featured snippet for uh, that very specific keyword, and you know that does drive business results because people are searching for it and they learn about Meraki. They can get retargeted, or sales can reach out to them afterwards. So I actually wasn't even thinking about the implications around that retargeting. Yep. Retargeting exactly. So when you come in through like a generic search term, you just got sessioned, and now you're getting retargeted, and. It could be based on, of course, it's based on, it could be as specific as the piece of micro content you consume too. It's not, it's not like generic products. It would be specific to the fact that you were looking at stuff related to a research stage of a KitchenAid mixer. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, with, with I mean, for you guys, I mean, okay, so, you know, contract values are, or ACVs are what, 40K to, to 700K plus. I mean, how are you guys charging for this? Is it on a monthly basis? Is it, what, how does it work? So we're a cloud-based software, and um, I mean, people look at this, by the way, and I should really call out, this is a software product, uh, but we have tools to ingest content, and we also have an authoring suite that guides the authors. But most most of our large companies, they've got a ton of content. We just ingest. Uh, so it, it depends on the amount of usage, so it's really value-based pricing. 
So we have customers that are $750,000 annual contracts. And then we have growth stage software companies that are $45,000 annual contracts. Uh, so it's really value-based based on the amount of usage they're, they're driving. Uh, and then, and then our, our customers, most of the software unicorns are MindTouch customers, Sprinkler, Domo, Docker, Zora. They're all MindTouch customers. And it, this has been a really significant growth hack for them is it, it improves renewal rates, but it also drives, you know, net new and helps them control their brand. This is so crazy. The nice thing is like Whirlpool, we close them as a customer and then Electrolux gets disrupted. So they're now a customer. And then Fisher Paykel, which is a um, luxury consumer white goods brand, they get disrupted. They're now a customer. We, we haven't even gone out to them. Interesting. Okay. So if I'm looking at, if I go back to Meraki right now, where does it say, where can people actually find out about you? Because I'm, I'm assuming, you know, this is a subdomain and you guys are hosting it. Like if I go to this, how do they find out about you? Well, what they'll do is somebody, some business analyst on their end goes, what the heck are they using for all of their self-service? And they look at the source and they see MindTouch. But you can see, like, it's, it's good you point that out. It's seamlessly integrated into their brand. Go to producthelp.whirlpool.com. Producthelp.whirlpool.com. And you can, you can swap Whirlpool for Maytag, Amana, KitchenAid if you like, but just start with Whirlpool. And that's MindTouch. It's totally seamlessly integrated into the web presence. Interesting. So you guys are customizing it for them too. Yeah. I mean, most of our customers have a partner that does the customization, somebody internally who does the customization. In some cases, we might do the customization, but it's just like HTML, CSS stuff. It, the, the way it's, it's, the product works is it makes it really easy to seamlessly integrate. The other thing I should point, I don't know how nerdy we should get. I mean, should I get geeky? We could get in the weeds. I mean, people on this, okay. the, you know, they, they like getting in the weeds. So the, the other thing that since the content's all been atomized and it's semantically structured, what we have is a touch points feature that allows you to layer this content across the customer journey. So we have this whole maturity model that we've co-developed with McKinsey and Accenture, both who are customers. Accenture is a partner. And what it, what it looks at is first thing you do is you unify your content. Next thing you do is you capture your content creation workflows. And then the, the, the next thing you do is you extend across the customer journey. So you take, once the content's been well structured, now you put it on your .com in discrete places around the customer touch points. Your CRM system, your call center, your ticketing, your community, your e-commerce. So we have a configurator that spits out a little snippet of code that's a, a touch point widget that can take context from the page and then inject into the page the right information to help people move along a purchase or move along a renewal or move along a self-service support. But it's all very specific to customer support content training materials. We're not interested in being an end-to-end web content management system. Adobe can do that. Sitecore can do that. That's fine. No general purpose. We're very focused on customer self-service. Okay. And I wanted to touch upon one point. I mean, when you when you talked about value-based pricing, is it just based on number of documents or number of visitors? How do you How do you define value? Yeah, it's, it's right. It's all about engagement metrics. So how much engagement are you driving is, is what's driving it. So there's a, there's a, there's a direct value associated with the people who are accessing the content. And that's what drives the license. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, I, I think each company, maybe, you know, engagement metrics, they're looking at different ones. And I'm assuming you might be doing it on a, on a case by case basis. Correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. But, you know, when you started out doing value based pricing, I'm sure people are wondering, how do you go about setting up value-based pricing? Like, what are some steps to, 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 to go about it the correct way? Because that's not something usually what, what people do a lot of. You take a guess, you're going to get it wrong, and then you adjust. And um, 
that it's very cookie cutter how we do it. But the other thing we think about, if, if, if somebody were going, ah, I want to do value-based pricing, it can accelerate the deal flow. It also, there's a whole lot of great reasons to do value-based pricing. But the way that we thought about it was we thought about it in terms of, okay, our principal buyer starting out was a head of support or a head of product or a head of customer success. So what are the engagement metrics that they value? And then you go, okay, well, these are what they value. And then as we started seeing the impact that we had on businesses' ability to drive marketing outcomes, well, that's a different set of engagement metrics. Or uh, the next one is this drives a lot of sales acceleration because especially if you have a technical product, like I said, why are most of the software unicorns mind touch customers? Because they have technical products and they need an always-on 24-7 sales engineer that helps them establish credibility and makes it scalable for the technical close. So what are those engagement metrics? So it really boils down for us to something very simple, and it's the requests and the requests delivered by channel. Got it. Okay. I'm trying to understand this a little more. So maybe I work better with examples. So let's say I'm a SaaS company, and you know on my site I'm getting you know maybe my the main things I care about are you know number of leads. I'm willing to pay you know a certain lead is worth a certain amount of dollars to me, and my conversion rate is one percent or something like that. Do you measure it based on, you know, uh, traffic and then you multiply those numbers? Uh, is it some kind of equation based on, you know, the type of business? Well, the way that it's, it's even simpler than that. I mean, we've got to boil down to a science where it's like, Hey, what touch points do you need? That determines which purchaser we're engaging. Is it touch points for the dot com, the community, the commerce experience? And then we price based on the touch points, which allow us to integrate into a particular engagement channel and then the other thing we price based on is just pure usage. Okay. So the more usage you drive, the higher the license. So when we have like the world's largest travel conglomerate, TUI, it's a European brand. Most Americans don't know, but they're massive. They do 52 billion euros a year, largest travel conglomerate on the planet. Wow. They're a customer of ours. And, uh, you know, they drive a lot of usage. Or if it's, you know, a growth stage software company like Radius, they're not driving as much usage. So, and then, so just think touch points, and usage is how we do it. It makes it simple for us. Yeah, that makes it way easier. Okay, great. So I'm sure people are wondering now, how do you how do you guys grow? I mean, how did you how did you acquire? Let's say your first. You have 300 customers right now, right? Yeah, it's over 300. I'm not. It's been a while since I looked. So we started off originally as an open source project that we shipped way back in 2006. And Steve and I wanted to solve this problem of self-service, but the original idea was for academicians and researchers, because we did research at Microsoft around high-performance computing and distributed systems. That's what we used to call IoT, distributed systems, Internet of Things, right? So uh, that's where we started, and we had this pain around how do we get our research to matriculate out to the product teams at Microsoft, and we knew nobody's going to open up a Microsoft Word file and read it. And we knew that nobody's going to use a SharePoint site that we set up. It's not effective for self-service. So we set out to solve this problem. We did. And it became this wildly popular open source project. And I say wildly popular. I'm not exaggerating. It was in the top five open source projects on the planet. This was back when, before GitHub, it was SourceForge. And there's 360,000 projects ranked. And, you know, every project is up there except for like Linux. And, uh, yeah, we were we were number four most popular, thousands of downloads a day. Mm. That totally took us by surprise, and we said, "Well, shit, let's sell a, a a license or a support subscription." So we started doing that in 2008, 2009, and then 
we decided that this business is, is too hard to scale on premise, open source. We had a lot of competition around IT guys installing us internally. We realized that's not a market we wanted to go into. So we just said, Hey, let's jettison all of this open source stuff, go a hundred percent cloud, focus a hundred percent on this self service use case. Thank God we did. We launched the cloud version in 2011 and then it was, it was really just off to the races. But, uh, We'd taken that open source and developed millions, tens of millions of deployments. We still, we haven't shipped code on the open source since January of 2010. And every week we've got people coming in saying, Hey, can we get an upgrade to this open source? It's like, man, that thing's seven years old. No, <laughs> but I mean, the, the damn thing was bulletproof. And that's part of the problem with the open source model is you want to have this like planned obsolescence where things break. And the damn thing was bulletproof. You'll still see reviews about MindTouch Wiki is what we, Decky Wiki or Wiki, right? That we called it back then. And it's, it doesn't even look like the new product, but you'll find reviews and it's like, this thing runs like a refrigerator. You know, you can't break it. And, uh, anyway, 2011, we released our cloud and we'd already had PayPal, Exact Target, Intuit, Mozilla, a whole bunch of, of companies or foundations like Mozilla using MindTouch for self-service. So we use them as kind of banner customers to drive closes and prove that we can deliver real value. And um, that's, that, I think that answers your question in a, lo- in a, in a long-winded manner. No, no, no. Th- that's really good. And I, I think there's some nuggets in there. So it sounds like, you know, you started out with, um, in 2008 with a completely, or not a completely different product, but you, know, you had the open source product. And then it sounds like it was kind of like a pivot. Oh man, I don't know if it was a pivot. It was a damn restart. Okay. So what, I mean, what are, I feel like there's some stories in there. The pivot would be too kind. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, I want to dig into that. What, what, like, you know, how did that feel? What are some lessons you learned from that? I want to hear, I think some stories would be awesome. Oh man, there's so many stories. There's so many different interviews about me talking about that online already. I mean, here's, here's what I normally say about this. So this is what I, I, this is my standard one is, is, um, if you stay at something long enough, keep a positive attitude and, just, I mean, be pathologically optimistic and continue to focus on delivering generative value for your customer. You're going to win. It's, it's going to sort itself out. But, uh, yeah, those are, that was a tough period going from, uh, this growth curve where we had this massive distribution and a very, very teeny tiny minuscule fraction of a percent of people converting over to pay, paid customers to all of a sudden a total restart where the massive distribution was for people in IT that had no desire to buy a cloud product. And it took, like, burn the boats on the beach, just real confidence in in our direction to stay the course. And I'm glad we did. If we hadn't, we wouldn't be in business today. We really wouldn't. How did you know it was the right time to, 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 to make the jump? Because you have that thing that's growing, you know, for, for, you know, a guy like me, it's like, you know, well, this thing's growing. We're going to try to make revenue work no matter what. But you guys had the courage to move in a different direction. Oh, it was, it was more than like, like we did in 2000, our first year selling the open source, we did a million dollars and, and, but we bootstrapped this business. You know, we took our first round of funding. We announced that at the beginning of last year. So that was our first round of funding ever. And we bootstrapped the whole thing. So yeah, the first year we did a million. The second year we more than doubled. And then the third year, I don't think we quite doubled the third year, but we were changing directions is why. Right. The, what, what gave us the confidence? 
for, for well, first of all, Steve, my co-founder, credit to him. He's like, I'm absolutely not shipping on-premise software anymore. It slows our pace of innovation. Mm-hmm. It's too laborious to package and QA for six different distributions of operating systems and flavors, and it's just way too laborious. So, I mean, I didn't have much choice because Steve pressed the issue. Thank God he did. But uh, the thing, the thing that I will say is that it was clear that the distribution acts of open source as kind of this freemium model was completely disrupted by the distribution economics of cloud software. Because yes, while you can give a free version out that you can then use as a feeder to your paid customers, the reality is that being able to fill out a form fill is a lot less lift than having to set up a whole environment and servers and and shit like that. So it was the, the idea that the, open source as a model for disruptive distribution economics at a business application level is just nobody's ever done it successfully. At an infrastructure level, there's many examples of people having done it successfully. Great. You know, I'm really curious. I mean, you know, 300 customers right now, you guys sound like you're doing really well. I mean, how, how do you guys go about acquiring customers today? What's working really well for you? Well, I mean, I wish I had some like silver bullet. I mean, the, the reality is, and then this is, this is actually a point of frustration for me as the CEO is that it's a point of pride and frustration. Our customer renewal rates by, by customer count is 96% and it has been since 2012. Also, what this means is that most of our customers are coming to us by referral. So we haven't like created this engine that's driving inbound demand our marketing wizardry it's mostly just because we we kicked ass for our clients they recommend us or their competitors notice that they're getting their ass handed to them because of us so they come inbound and i mean that's wonderful and it's definitely a point of pride around the product and everything but i would like to have this this marketing engine just cranking and helping people understand just how easy it is to deliver an effective self-service experience and how valuable and strategically important that is to your company. Interesting. Okay, cool. So it sounds like a lot of it's referral. It sounds like you've got a strong sales team as well, but you know, the marketing engine hasn't been created quite yet. Yeah, we've got a terrible marketing leader. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the thing, that, the thing that makes self-service so strategically important, and aside from the obvious stuff, which everybody hates, calling in support or chatting with support or filing a ticket, right? Everybody hates that. It's nonsense. But here's the major macro trends. Number one, subscription-based business models. If you have a subscription-based business model, customer renewal is critical. It's paramount. If you don't have a subscription-based business model in the next five years, you're not going to be in business in 10. So look at GE, look at, it doesn't matter if you're in heavy manufacturing, if you're in services, People are all moving to a subscription-based business model. It forces the vendor to provide continued value to the client. So why does MindTouch get lift from subscription-based business model? Because we help customers to achieve the value, to realize the value of the products they purchased. So they can onboard more swiftly. They can find the information to achieve the business outcomes they intended from making the purchase, or maybe it's not business outcomes, maybe it's your washer and dryer, right? And then we provide customer analytics that helps the customer success team move to be more effective in renewal and upsell. So that is a major business trend that is disrupting all businesses and is giving my touch left subscription-based business models. I'll give you, I'll give you one more. There's others, but I'll give you one more. 
uh, just for the sake of time. Businesses that sell through distribution channels are at risk of going out of business because they don't have a direct connection with their customers. Now, what I mean here is that let's say, well, you have to kind of rewind. Think about when we used to buy products before the industrial revolution. We would go down to the craftsmen. We'd talk to the craftsmen. They'd make us a beautiful product. They'd give it to us. We'd leave. Next time we'd have such a relationship with that craftsman, we'd go back and we'd, we'd buy from them again because they knew us and we felt a sense of connection there. Now, with the advent of the industrial revolution, we scaled up production in order to push that supply out to the market. Distribution networks were set up. So you, the model T, you can have whatever color you want as long as it's black, right? Mm-hmm. As they scaled up manufacturing, the distribution network allowed them to scale out to the market, but cut the company off from understanding the customer. They stopped being customer focused. Everything started getting manufactured in China, right? Everything was generic. Now let's look at what's happened over the last 10 years with Apple, with Tesla. They're owning their distribution channels. Right. With Amazon. Notice what Amazon's doing. Amazon's sitting on a pile of data. And as soon as the economics make sense for them to introduce a competing Amazon Basics product into their marketplace, they do. And all of the vendors that are selling packing cubes or suitcases, or perhaps soon washers and dryers, they're in trouble because we have a connection with Amazon. Amazon knows us. We know Amazon. We have affinity for the brand. The widget is less important. It's the Amazon logo we care about. Mm. So companies with distribution networks have to find creative ways to connect directly with their customers, to build profiles around their customers, to become customer focused. And we provide a very effective, low cost, easy way to overnight set up a direct connection with both the, re- the, the customers and the buyers. Awesome. Uh, I mean, are, do you have any case studies sitting online where it's like, okay, you know, uh, so-and-so company invests 700K, but they get like a $7 million return. Is there anything out there like that? Sure. There's, there's a bunch of case studies up at mindtouch.com. Um, you know, there's, there's ones in high tech like Cisco or software like Zora and, um, or even consumer white goods like, um, Whirlpool. The case studies, they're, they're up there, but there's also what I would encourage people to look at is there's webinars with customers on our website. I, I would encourage to go look at those, encourage you to look at those. And then there's also video testimonials. Like there's great videos of, TUI, uh, the travel conglomerate, or Conga, the software company that does um, sales enablement tools, or Avalara that does sales tax software, or uh, Whirlpool. There's great videos that are these little vignettes that are three to five minutes long that it's the customer talking about the impact on their business. Awesome. Great. Yeah, everyone should definitely go check it out because I think the implications behind this are, are pretty big. And I just have one more question before we hop off. What's one must-read book that you'd recommend to everyone? Oh, man, I always get that question. This changes often because I read quite a bit. What's one that I've read in the last year that really stood out? Well, every year I have a list of about 80 people, 70, 80 people that are on my book club. And I give them a gift every year of two books that I I, I provide handwritten notes in, thanking them for stuff that they've done over the years huh. to help me professionally. And last year, the two books I did was The Gene by Siddhartha Mukherjee, which was fascinating. 
it's the history of the gene and, and legacy, which is about the all blacks. So it's not always business books. The year before was sapiens, which is the history of, of our species. Absolutely fascinating book. And, and I think there's actually things in that book that's applicable to business and organizations though. And then the other one was, um, master switch, the rise and fall of information empires. So those are my last two book clubs that I gave out. Anyway, that's, that's good enough because I don't want to pull up in my, my app and look, but there you go. No, that, that's super helpful because, you know, we'll, we'll drop these into the show notes as well, but it shows kind of the, the book that, the books that you read aren't necessarily business books per se, but they give you so much perspective to do, do business in the world, right? So I think that's great. So Aaron, this is fantastic. What's the best way for people to find you online? Oh, I guess Twitter is probably easy. R-O-E-B-O-T. I'm Aaron Rowe is my middle name, Fulkerson. So it's R-O-E-B-O-T, Robot, on Twitter. Great. Aaron, thanks so much for doing this. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.